All right. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis. Genesis. Uh, Genesis is the first book. You can go to Genesis if you want. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you're new visiting, just want to say a special welcome. Glad that you're here. Glad that you could join us for worship uh, where we worship Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus was a God who came in human flesh and lived the perfectly obedient life for us that we could not live and died as our substitute in our place for our sin and rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death so that we might have new life in him, reconciliation with God, and life, and life to the full. And so we're, we're grateful. We sing, we celebrate, we worship because uh, he's in fact done this, and that's good news to us, and that's uh, why we sing songs. So we sing because uh, Christ has done these things, and we want to remind ourselves through singing, not only to declare to him that he's worthy of that, but also to remind ourselves that he has in fact done these things for us and secured them for us. We also uh, worship by um, sitting under the preaching of God's word so we might be reminded of what God says, not so much the, what we might want to say. And I always say the scriptures will study you much more often than you'll ever study them because they reveal your heart, reveal your proclivities, reveal your motives, thoughts, affections, and will show you where they're off and where they need to be, uh, all because God loves you and is relentless towards you and wanting you to understand how he's designed this place to be. Um, and we also worship by observing uh, communion with the Lord's Supper, depending on your background each week, to remember the centrality of Christ and being nourished by by these saving benefits that we have in his broken body and shed blood. Um, the, the, taking these elements never uh, adds righteousness to you. It does not increase the favor of God upon you. It is in a meaningful sense, deeply meaningful sense, um, a way that we remember and are nourished, again, through taking a visible meal of the gospel together, uh, reminding ourselves of Christ. And we're also uh, generous because God has been generous in Christ, so we give in the silver boxes on the back wall. I always say if you're not a regular tender member, uh, please, we're not interested in your money. We are just thrilled that you're here and want you to know, savor, enjoy, worship, follow, love, adore Jesus Christ. Um, before we get into the text, I want to give you guys just uh, brief uh, announcements. One is the member class. If you're wondering how we're structured, what we do, uh, you can sign up for the member class online. That'll be uh, November 4th, a Sunday from 1 to 3.30, um, and lunch will be provided, and you'll get to ask questions and, and dial in much more deeply into who we are as a family of faith and as a church and what we believe what we teach, how we're structured, things like that. Also want you guys to always put on your calendars the last Wednesday of the month for prayer. We are so encouraged and delighted at how God is moving this place to be a people of prayer. Um, in particular, um, these last Wednesdays of the month, we're very thankful. So uh, we, won't, we pray this would be a lightning rod for us as a church. And even, you know, if you were there, we're sowing in teachings on prayer and why it matters. So uh, we encourage you to mark that down. October 31st is the next one, 730 to 830. Last Wednesday of the month is when we gather. Uh, hope to have you with us. Um, let's pray. Ask God to work. Ask God to speak. Uh, and then we'll get into the text. Because uh, there's a lot that I'd love to chat about this morning. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we can know you. I thank you for uh, protecting us from having to aimlessly walk in speculation, blindly. Uh, but that you revealed yourself in creation. You revealed yourself in your son, Jesus. And you revealed yourself in the written revelation uh, of your word, which is the scriptures. Uh, so thank you that we get to open them together today. Thank you that we get to hear from you today. Father, would you uh, increase in us? Would you conform us more to the image of the Son? Would you help us more deeply understand our adoption into the kingdom of God as your sons and daughters by grace? Uh, Father, help those in here. I know this room is filled with legitimate challenges and burdens. Um, so Father, would you meet us there and free us from distractions? Help us to, to be served well. By your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Galatians chapter 4. We've been in the book of Galatians. If you're new, dropping in for the first time, here's what basically this book is teaching. Uh, Paul planted, the Apostle Paul planted a number of churches in modern day Turkey, which was Galatia. And there were a group of churches that he is writing to. And here's his burden, here's his plea. His concern is that they would drift and that they are drifting from this gospel of grace, this gospel where Jesus Christ alone and his finished work, his life that was righteous for years because we were unrighteous, his death that we could not pay a debt, so he died for us to pay the debt, and we needed infinite righteousness, so his resurrection allows him to impute this righteousness and verify and validate that it's finished, that he has authority to do that. He then rises and gives his spirit to all who would trust in his name, in his work, in his life, and in his, uh, really, supremacy of his worth and value in his glory. And so we, when we do that, right, we become Christians. It's by no act of your own, no merits of your own, no rights of your own. Uh, it is solely by Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the good news. It's what we call the gospel. So now this church is being tempted to drift from that because these false teachers are coming in and they're beginning to teach things that are, that are anti this gospel of grace. They're teaching that you have to absorb to culture and you have to add ceremonies and rituals and um, things like circumcision and, and ethnicity uh, to basically become a Christian. And then you can kind of add Jesus to all these things on top of that and that'll kind of help seal up the deal. Uh, and we know because the Scriptures are clear, the whole Bible's clear, Paul's clear, Jesus is clear, the Holy Spirit's clear to us in his own testimony that we rely solely on Christ for everything. So you don't add anything to him, you don't take away anything from him, you stick to him. Um, and so with that in mind, I want to ask you a question as I was reading this text this morning uh, that I want you to think about or consider. Um, if you're a Christian, and I realize that's even a little bit, you know, Debatable, right? Is we're even, I mean, when I say Christian, I don't just mean you're an attender, right? I mean that you have leaned into this work of Christ, that you enjoy Jesus with the Holy Spirit's help, you desire to follow Him, love Him, serve Him, please Him, adore Him. Um, if that's you, if, if you find yourself to be a Christian in this place, um, I, I, this question I want to ask you is Are you convinced that God, through Christ and His grace, loves you and likes you as His Son? And daughter. Now, I'm not asking you if he loves people. Like, I'm not asking you if he loves, you know, just the world. I'm talking about you as an individual. I'm saying, do you believe? Are you totally secure, rock solid, unshakable, convinced that God has affection for you and intimacy towards you and loves you as his son or daughter? Are you, are you convinced? About that, like, like if I could come into the presence of God, which I, I can't do in the, in the literal sense, if I could literally go into his presence and ask him about you by name and say, hey, uh, what do you think about Sarah? What do you think about Mike? What do you think about Mark? What do you think about John? What do you think about Charles? And, and you're convinced his response would be, I know Mark. I know Mike. I mean, I, I'm crazy about it. I mean, I love him. I love her. I enjoy being their heavenly father. I'm not regretting them being in my family. Are you, are you convinced about that? Now here's why I ask that. Um, if, if you're not convinced in that grace that secures you and adopts you in the family of God, you'll spend the remainder of your life in your insecurity trying to constantly earn that from him in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you'll constantly be trying to earn and glean this affection, this love. Instead of it starting with his affection towards you, you'll think that your performance is more boss to employee than father to son. 
right? That, that's how you'll engage with him. And God's this God that gives you a job description when he saves you and says, hey, hey, fill it out. And then depending on how you perform, it's based on performance, not intimacy. So if you do this well, then he's good at you. He'll give you a raise at work. And if you do something bad, he's mad at you and he slams the gavel. Like, are you convinced by this or are you insecure in this? And see, the book of Galatians is showing us. It's amazing. Paul is showing us why it's so important that we get this grace. Because grace creates a security, Grace doesn't create insecurity. Grace creates profound security. In the book of Galatians, the people Paul's dealing with, he says, look, uh, you've already found security in this relationship with Jesus Christ. Like, he's your father now. He's your heavenly father. So why would you revert now to trying to re-earn things that he freely gave you? Why would you walk out from under that affection? Why would you try to leave this family that he grafted you into as sons and daughters? Why do you keep doing this stuff and acting like slaves trying to earn his favor? It's like... I was thinking of the prodigal in Luke 15 this week. Um, if you're familiar with that, that, that story, right? Luke 15, the, 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 the one son is like, I just want my inheritance. Just give it to me. So he gives the inheritance right to him, and he says, uh, and then he goes, I, I just want to like squander it. So he, he leaves the home, and he just abuses the inheritance. He squanders all he has, and he finds himself eating with pigs. If you know that story. And what he says, though, is profound. As he's sitting there eating among pigs, he thinks to himself, maybe I can go back home and be with dad. Because maybe he'll receive me as a servant. As a slave. Even that would be better. Because see, like in my mind, as I, as I think about this, it's so much easier for me to get in my mind that God accepts me as a servant. Right? As a slave. I'm like, I'm like he, he's God that, that created the universe. I mean, he is infinitely big, wise, all-knowing, sovereign, good, and glorious. And I am puny Mike Reed, pea-sized brain, don't know how to walk straight, haven't figured it out. So, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll serve him the rest of my life. Of course. I mean, he's the master, I'm the servant, he tells me what to do, and I just follow, right? What, what's hard for me to get into my mind is this Luke 15 where I'm going, hey, hey, will you at least take me back as a servant? And he goes, no way. No way, you're my son. You're my daughter. Let's put a ring on his finger. Let's celebrate because my son's home. Man, that is tremendous in your view of God. Man, this is, this is profound. There are backgrounds here. There are experiences here where, where it is so hard for you to begin to even fathom that reality. That God accepts us as not just servants, but sons. Profound. And so that's what Paul is getting at. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that we will even serve God birthed from insecurity if we're not careful, not out of security that comes from his great love towards us and our love for him as our father. So in Galatians, they were drifting from this view of God that was basically boss to employer, not father to son. We had to follow these 600 plus laws. We have to obey these ceremonies and rituals and then God will like us and then God will accept us and then God will allow us to be in his family. But God, Paul reminds them, God is not boss, God is father. God is not seeking performance. He's seeking to blow your mind with his grace. He wants you to be so floored at his mercy and his love towards you that would create a change. So let's look at 4 verse 1. And he's coming off the heels of last week, if you were here, him talking about this idea of promise and error, right? The word, and we inherit this promise, 
right? From Abraham to Adam and Eve to all the prophets, the seed that came was Jesus Christ. He makes us righteous. We don't make ourselves righteous. That's where he's going with this text. So he's coming off of that. Here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, so Paul continues this idea of of heir last week, and now this adoption that happens by grace. And he goes, okay, when a a son is a child, he's really treated like a slave. Now, now here's what he's talking about. Back then, you're going to hear themes of last week, that that when a child was born, they had a guardian or a servant or a slave, and and not like what we, we think today. This is just someone who would come alongside the child and teach them, tutor them, help them understand right from wrong, right? But both child and servant reported to the father. Both slave and son received demands from the father. But at some point, eventually, whether it's coming of age or a certain period in his life, the son and the servant would separate and the son would inherit all that the father would have. And he would be wealthy and he would be free, yet the servant would stay poor and enslaved, in a sense. And so here's what Paul's saying with this analogy. He's saying, before grace, you used to be like this child. The law was meant to tutor you to Jesus, and you had no freedom. You couldn't, you couldn't enjoy his fatherhood. You were not an heir. You did not receive the full rights as sons. You felt the slavery under the sin and the law, and now you're free. Why would you revert to being like that again? You went your separate ways in Christ. So why are you going to revert to what's already freely been given? And he compares it with this idea of being enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, um, a lot of people, not a lot, I don't know, maybe some people, uh, will take this and immediately think this is talking about like childish thinking. Okay, well, you used to think like a child. And they'll pull text from Paul where he says you used to think like a child, eat like a child, act like a child. Um, you got to keep it in context. Stay in context with your Bible. Last week, he was talking about captivity, bondage, enslavement. And here that word principles really means spirits, elementary spirits. He's talking about the demonic forces behind these things. He's talking about Satan and his adversaries being at work in the world. So here's really what he's, he's getting at is because of this fallen world, we've been subjected to these elemental spirits, right? Satan's called what? The prince of this air. Here's the thing. Um, Satan's not free. He's on a leash, God can jerk his neck back anytime he wants, right? He's not someone who just has free reign. He just does whatever he wants. He is, all he can do is pester the sons and daughters of God until the lake of fire is fully ready for him, right? And all who would follow him and all who would seek to follow under his ways and believe in his tactics, right? And so he's showing you once enslaved, your your form of worship, even all the things you would do had demonic influence behind it because he did not want you to worship God in freedom from the law. He wanted you to be enslaved, So you were enslaved to these elemental spirits. And so he's saying this law was intended to bring to your end so that you would see Christ, but Satan's at work leveraging the law to keep you bound up. That's that's the language here. And wouldn't that be just like him, right? To pervert and twist the law to keep you enslaved? Wouldn't that be so like him? To get you to leverage the law in a way that it would actually abuse his grace and not honor his grace? Um, an example I was thinking of and, and just in marriage, and it could be if you're single too, just in relationships with others. Um, a mar- marital couple, couple might come in. They might sit down and say, hey, we need to meet. 
Um, and, and here's what happens normally. Uh, both of you give your State of the Union, right? So they both give their State of the Union address. They give their thesis of the, the ethos of the marriage. Uh, here's what you often hear. Um, whoever's giving the State of the Union says little to nothing about them. But they'll give you the whole State of the Union. They'll say, marriage is just awful, this is falling apart, we aren't agreeing, blah, blah, blah. And it's always an indictment, usually against the other. That's why this ethos is not working well. So, so here's what's profound, though. Um, God gave you Ephesians 5 in the Scriptures for your joy. So here's what happens. Uh, people actually use the commands of God not as gospel implications and gospel power and gospel fuel, right? So, so, so maybe it's you grew up and you just heard a lot of feel-good sermons on marriage. So, so you walk in and go, well, I've done all the scriptures have asked me to do as a husband, as a wife. Like I, I've fulfilled those, so they need to get on the train. They need to figure it out. Here's what you're doing. You're not looking at the gospel in front of all those good things. You're using those things to leverage them against your spouse, Hey, this is, this is what he's getting at. This is how we pervert the law. We take God's good demands. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Lay down your interests. Serve. Die to yourself. Give up your life for them, right? And then, then wives, would you lovingly respect and submit and follow and, and serve and care for your husband? So this beautiful union, distinct roles happens in the way that God made it. But we take those good commands and we use them as leverage instead of worship towards our spouse, and that's what he's getting at here is, is you're, 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 he's even perverted how you understand marriage. You used to worship that. You used to think marriage was about you. You used to think it was about you getting your way, therefore you'd be more happy. And then God brought you into the gospel and he saved you and showed you marriage was to make you holy. It was not about how your, your spouse performed. It was about you being the problem constantly, which is so hard because we're so self-centered and so prideful and so arrogant. Right? I mean, we're all in this together. Listen, you're like, oh, man, I'm good. I won't be meeting with you. Yeah, ten years, you'll call, right? Well, you'll come in. We'll talk. State of the union. We'll, we'll start. And I'll remind you. Remember ten years ago, Galatians 4, right? We discussed this. Like, this is, this is what he's getting at here. That the heart of God is, we've got to be so careful how we use the law. So he said, you're, you're, you're starting to use it to enslave you once again. Verse 4, look at what he says. How are we freed then? To be adopted by this grace, he answers it. But when the fullness of time had come, when God's plan came to the climax of Christ, the apex of human history, right? We knew out of the gate in Genesis 3 that Christ would be the seed that would come, promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the prophets, all the way down the line, John the Baptist announces he's here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's Jesus, born of a woman. That's Mary, born under the law in humanity, Restricted, limited in a sense, not in his godness, but in his human sense, to redeem those who were under the law, those of us who weren't righteous and could not live a perfectly righteous life, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ladies, you're included, and daughters. It's universal. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the obvious issue is, well, how are we freed from this enslavement to elementary spirits? This is grace. Life, death, resurrection. I'm not going to stop telling you that. Like, the, even the way you were adopted was not you decided to be in the family of God. It was life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love this. The whole trinity gets involved. God the Father sends God the Son. 
And God the Son does only what he can do in his life, death, and resurrection. And God the Son sends his spirit. And the spirit in conversion enters you. And that heart that did not want to cry, Dad, even though we were cute, cuddly, right, and looked all nice, we had original sin from birth, we wanted what we wanted, we were selfish by nature, we whined about everything, we just wanted milk, we were sinful from birth, and even though our hearts were enemies of God out of birth, he formed us by his spirit and conversion to make us want to cry, Father. It's amazing. But here, stop and think about how amazing this is, though. Like I always say, man, get into the text. Like, look at what you're reading. Some of you guys, you've read these verses your whole life. I know that. Oh, I know. We're adopted, and we're sons and daughters. And man, man think about this, though. I don't know, if you're like me, man, I'm always overanalyzing and looking into things and trying to figure out. But this is amazing. I was thinking about this this week. You, if you have a view of God at all, I'd, I'd beg the majority of us think, holy, he's going to smite us. I mean, don't you realize how wicked you are? Or, man, I don't know, I can never approach him because he's just so holy and I'm so bad, right? But just self-pity or arrogance or pride, it's one of those. But, but really, though, if we know what we know about the Scriptures, man, you start reading about God, man. You're, you're reading insane things. That he dwells in unapproachable light. Hebrews 10 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He, he's the God that wiped out the world with a flood because he was sick of sin. I mean, he was a God that, that destroyed his enemies. And those are in the scriptures, right? You start reading about this God, and then here's what's amazing. Christ comes, saves you, forgives you, redeems you, and you go to that God and you say, hey, what should I call you? And he says, Dad. Did you hear what I just said? He says, Father. Call me Father. Call me Dad. Call me lover of your soul. See, I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting, all right, I get saved. This God is right in doing me wrath. He's right in destroying me and obliterating me because of my sin. He's, he's right in being a boss to employee and going, hey, here's your job description. Fill it out, and I'm mad at you if you don't handle it right, and I'll always praise you or maybe give you a promotion if you do well. It's all based on performance. That's what I'm expecting. It's amazing, though, man. So I was reading this, man, that... that, that he says here, but, but Abba, but Father, that's totally different. That's different. That's what you want me to say? That's what my heart's going to cry out? It's not going to be, Master, don't hurt me? It's not going to be, Master, don't beat me? This is, this is profound. And God says, yes, I'm a father, and I've adopted you, and you're my son and daughter, and I've sent Jesus to die for your sin, and I've put my spirit in you so you can live by my power, and all your future sins Jesus purchased too. What grace? What grace? If we're honest, many of us live more with a theology of karma than grace. If I can twist God's arm and if I can do this, then God will bless me. Right? If I pick up my toys, I'll get an ice cream cone. Right? If I don't cheat on my spouse, he'll give me a raise at work. Not Father, who says, you can come to me with anything and I've given you everything. And why can you come to him with anything? Because you've earned it? No, because intimacy is already guaranteed. You tracking with this text? I mean, this is massive for your understanding of God, him being your father. And I hate this text for many of you. I hate it. Because I know your experience is growing up. And I know that when you hear father, you cringe. Because you have had horrific experiences. And I've talked to so many in this room. 
So many. And so you can't help because even your idea of dad, of father, is so polluted. You've got presuppositions. And so you hear the scriptures lay before you that he's this perfect father that says, hey, come to me, son. Come to me, daughter. Hey, I want to celebrate you. I want to warm you up. I want to encourage you by my grace. I want to lavish you with my kindness. It, it's so hard for you because you take all those presuppositions and you, and you paste them onto him. And it's so impossible for you to walk in the freedom that grace actually offers you. And even if you're in here going, well, I'm a great dad. Okay, that's great. You're still not like God. You're still not perfect. You still don't measure up to him. I mean, I was literally thinking about this on my drive this morning, almost in tears. That I just hope Jackson knows that I'm not God. Like, buddy, I'm not like him. And I'm going to fail you. And I'm going to lean into performance sometimes when I shouldn't. And I'm going to forget to show you grace when I should. I'm not like him. Please do not see God as me in my failures. Man, see him as perfect. Continually see him. He's so gracious. And just like he forgives daddy, he forgives you. And just like he shows grace to daddy, he shows grace to you. It's so hard. But here, this is a profound text. Because here, the gospel is grace that we deserved nothing. We deserve nothing. It was unmerited favor. Have you ever seen a father who was more concerned with performance than relationship? It's easy to think that that's how God is. That that's his primary concern. Instead of knowing him, enjoying him, which fuels obedience and love and kindness. A bad dad says, hey son, uh, when you do these things, come back to me in 10 years and I'll let you know if you're still my son or daughter. That's not the gospel of grace. Gospel grace is I'm going to make you my son and daughter when you're already in glad rebellion in my name. So where can you go? Like, like you, you don't have a way to somehow like rearrange grace once you're in. It's, no, I'm going to continue to love you, show you kindness, and I'm going to give you full rights to the family. And this is, he wants you to be secure. Look at verse 7. This is just wild. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, this is how God gets you to be holy. It's by grace. The whole rest of this text is going to outwork itself in holy living. But he does it by reminding of you of who you are in your identity in Christ. You being adopted. You being rescued. You being redeemed. You being forgiven. You being just ransomed and arrested by this grace in the gospel. And he reminds you of who you are. He says, I'm your dad. I love you. I put my spirit in you. And you come to me not because you're earning love, because you're already loved. Because you're my son. Because you're my daughter. I love this. And we don't come to him because we're his slave or servant, but because we're his son and daughter. We don't come to him because we're his employee. We come to him because we're his kids. We're his children. Now, I don't know if you've considered that word heir. But I love word studies, just personally. In my, in my study. I'll go to Bible Gateway and I'll find a word and I'll just kind of put it in. And I'll kind of look at different verses that surround that word in the scriptures and what it says about it. And this is one, I've always found myself wanting to circle the word heir in my Bible. Because the Galatians just said, if you're a son, if you're in Christ, son or daughter, then you're an heir. What is an heir? One that inherits all that the Father has, right? So I'm going, well, okay, I need a little bit more than that. So you can go to Romans 8. Romans 8 will say, um, 
If you're an heir with God, you're a co-heir with Christ. Well, that's awesome. What does Christ inherit? Then you go to Hebrews 1. Christ inherits everything. Everything. If you do the work, that means you are a co-heir with Christ who inherits everything. Therefore, you as a son and daughter inherit everything. Okay. Do you, do you know what that means? That includes Jupiter. That, no, no, no. That includes all that God has. Galaxies, stars, here. God is trying to get at, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tease this out in just a moment so we can really feel the weight of this. Like he, he's trying to get you to feel so secure. Like I thought I'd blow your mind with his inheritance, thought I'd blow your mind with my grace. You get me, right? You get all of me. You get all that I own, all that I have. That's insane. God's going, you wanna be rich? You wanna chase dreams, try to validate your house with a big house in Bergen County or New York City area? That house doesn't compare to galaxies. Right, you want to be secure in an inheritance? You want to be secure? I, I used to uh, study. I found that out in the West Coast, and I don't even know if there's parts over here, but there are these kids out in L.A. and Beverly Hills areas that they'd actually go through training financial classes because they inherited $4 billion when they turned 18. Their parents were so rich. I don't give them $8 billion, I give them 4 I'm going, okay, that's a still a good deal. Like, I'll, I'll take the four. So here, these parents are teaching them, here's how you steward, here's how you save, here's how you put in the stock market. You're 10 years old, entering that class for eight years, learning how to dream about your inheritance. Is that not the Christian life? You're saved and you're just taught how to dream about glory. You have to dream about what's coming. You're taught about how to think about it. I mean, what would you be consumed by for those eight years? All you are liars if you're not saying what I do with the money. Right? <laughs> I mean, who, you're, a, you're crazy if you're not. I don't know, don't really have to worry about college. Paid off, don't need a job when I grow up. Paid off, any debts, that'll be paid off. Uh, where do I want to travel? What kind of food do I want to eat? Who do I want to give money to and, and help my family and my friends? You'd be totally consumed with what you do with that inheritance. And I was sitting here reading this text going, if I am told that I inherit all that God has, which is an infinite amount of riches, why am I not consumed by that? Like, like, why am I not sitting around thinking about it when I'm in financial strain and when life is hard and when the, and the, when the ceiling caves in on me? Like, why am I not thinking more eternally? Why am I not dreaming more about glory and looking at the texts that are as real for me today as they will be in the future? Like, well, this is insane. And the question is, are you secure in that? Because this is where it all goes back to security. If you're not secure in who you are in Christ, you're going to search for it everywhere else. And trust me, uh, the world be will become much more appealing to you the less you learn about God and who you are in Christ. And the more you dive into texts and learn about who you are in Christ, the less appealing the world becomes because you realize all that you have. You realize all that you inherit. You realize all that Christ is to you and towards you. You become very less secure in earthly things. Now, what's awesome is if you still get the, the $4 billion, there's no promise you'll enjoy that, right? You could die at the age of 21 in a car accident. You, you could have someone embezzle your stock. You could have someone rob you of your riches. Um, and you're limited in this life even to how long you can enjoy it. But Peter will tell us you have an inheritance kept by God waiting for you that is unfading 
imperishable, undefiled, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break it and steal. No one can touch it. That's amazing, right? In Christ, you have him. That's the good news of the gospel. It's going to tie it back at the end. I mean, some of us just live just totally unaware of who we are in Christ. Totally unaware. And that is what brings about the insecurity. That's why I asked the question in the beginning, are you convinced of this? Because grace is the only way that you will ever live a life of obedience birthed from your acceptance in Christ and not trying to earn acceptance from Christ. Now verse 8, here's what happens. If you don't understand verses 1 to 7, the temptation will be and lead to verses 8 to 20. He says this in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. We'll talk about that in a minute. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Same wording, elementary spirits, the demonic forces behind what you worship. Whose slaves you want to be once more. Paul's going, okay, I thought when God adopted you by grace, brought you into his family, made you a son and daughter of the high king of kings, who is holy in infinite perfections, who demands justice and holiness, who you rightly deserve wrath from. I thought when he canceled all that for you, gave you this mind-blowing inheritance, you're going back to that enslavement? You're going to wander back to that? You're going to try to go back to what's already fully been given? Have you forgotten who you are in the gospel? Have you forgotten how you earned this gospel by grace in the first place? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. The Galatians, before they were saved, were enslaved to what he calls elementary principles, right? Gods who were not gods, the demonic forces. Now, if you, you want to get into this, you'll, you'll see that they basically uh, drew out from every kind of effective nature, a spiritual being that you had to appease to get from that spiritual being what you wanted. So they had, you know, if you want to get married, you appease Aphrodite, right? If you want to have rain, you appease the God that brings rain. If you want to be pregnant, you go to the fertility God. You appease that God until you can receive that. And what's amazing is Paul's saying, these gods aren't gods. They're behind the demonic. Satan's on a leash. They don't have the authority and power that you think they have. Because Jesus crushed the head of Satan. Like he's the highest authority. He's the one who sovereignly rules and reigns. These gods don't sovereignly rule and reign. So so why are you trying to get from these gods on promises they can't even fulfill? Only the God of the Bible can fulfill his promise, which goes back to last week when God makes a promise, you can trust it. When he says you're an heir, you can believe it. When he says you're adopted and you're a son and daughter, and this is how I view you as father, you can believe it. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And don't miss, though, that phrase, when you did not know God, but now you've come to know God, or rather be known. He's continuing this idea of the Father's heart towards his adopted children. Because that phrase just hit me. I mean, that word for know, knowing, speaks of deep intimacy. So, so, but rather known by God hit me. See, there's a total difference for me to say, I know God, and God to say, I know Mike Reed. Have you ever thought of that? Like, like, like his eye is upon me. He sees me. He watches me with fatherly care. 
Like, like he's so aware of me. See, I, I get so used to me. You know, God's, God's preoccupied. God, God's worried about, you know, like Middle East. And, and Russia's got some issues. And he's, he's, he's working things out. He's taking all these, you know, billions of prayer requests at the same time. He's building his church across continents and ages and time. And he's doing all these things. But, but, but wait, wait, wait. He's in the midst of his universal full capabilities. He's totally watchful and present and on me. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about it? That, that he's concerned about you as an individual, not just people. That God cares to hear you cry out, Abba, Father, and talk to him and commune with him. Has it ever hit you? Have you ever considered what it means in Christ that you're no longer a slave but a son known by God? Amazing. Amazing for me to think if I were to some more to ask God about my name that he knows me. It's so encouraging because life is so hard because life is so just filled with fracture and folly and futility and pain and, and unmet expectations. God knows us. Verse 10, he's going to say something pretty insane here just to prepare you. He con- continues to talk about this grace that so you better get it that you're known by him, that you're secure in grace, in the gospel, don't earn it. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. This is crazy. Paul just finished saying, you got to track with the scriptures. That's why I say, just read through books. Okay, just, just, it's fine to cherry pick, but it's just really unhealthy. Okay, you're going to just form views that are a little bit weird. So, so he says here that this idea is he's walking through, he just finished saying, I'm concerned that you might be drifting to the worship of something that's driven by the demonic. Just said that. He just finished saying that. And now he goes right into a reference of Jewish practices of holiness. Okay. It's days, weeks, seasons, years. Here's what he's saying. And just, just to protect you from going off the rails, it's not the observance that's sinful. It's not these Jewish customs that are sinful. It's how you use them. Romans 14 is very clear about that. We don't have time for that. Separate sermon. So, He's talking about here, he's basically saying this. You were enslaved to demons through paganism. And if you look back at their history, it was rampant before Christ. I mean, temple prostitution, self-mutilation, child sacrifice. He says, you were once enslaved to that, right? The demonic behind what you were worshiping. I fear you're going to be enslaved to demons again through religious observance. That's heavy. Let me put this in Burden County language for you. If you believe that you being a part of this saves you, you are not worshiping Jesus Christ. You are actually worshiping something influenced by the demonic. Like if you think that going to groups saves you, if you think that your participation in the gathering justifies you before God, if you think by, by I don't know, 
just your religious activity and your religious busyness, that that somehow increases righteousness to where God says, justified, he goes, you are walking a dangerous line. Wow. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. He's when you're, you're, you're worshiping something else. He goes, Paul says, you're still enslaved into elementary principles. You're enslaved to religious practice. You're not enslaved to Christ. I mean, you ever wonder why Christmas and Easter's full? You ever thought about that? Why do we have to add services? Why is everyone flocking regardless of background? It's all of humanity coming in going, okay, hey, I'm going to give, uh, I'm a Christer, Christmas Easter. I'm going to give my two days, right? Give my two days a year so that God now will be appeased and now I can keep my right standing with him. And then I'll move on throughout my life. And then, hey, I'll show up again on Christmas and Easter. Isn't that not true? I mean, do you not see just in the heart of humanity? I mean, what, what's the posture of coming in this place? I say it all the time. Is it, man, yeah, I just, I know. If I get there, then God's going to love me better. Then he'll be the father of God that I want and that I see in the scriptures instead of this scandalous grace that says, no, I love you even in those moments you rebel. And I pray my grace and mercy continually draws you back and that you repent of sin and turn to Christ ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. I mean, you ever thought about this? And this is why it's the, the, this is the danger of so many, especially in, in just westernized evangelicalism, is if you don't know God, you don't know that you don't know him. Because you have built up this idea of spirituality off of attendance in a gathering and living vicariously through other preachers and teachers and sowing yourself and attaching yourself to a movement and not to Jesus. That's why Paul is so emphatic about this. I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. You've heard me preach. You've been here long enough, man. The gathering is necessary. Like us doing this together is necessary. It's a means of grace that God uses to build us up in the most holy faith and conform us more to the image of the Son. These are all a means to sanctify us, to grow us in the image of Christ. Never a means to justify us or save us. Like, like church does not justify you. Jesus justifies you. Like you, you just gathering here does not impute to you salvific things in the sense of Christ slamming the gavel in the judiciary court and saying you're made right before me. Jesus does that. And then these things God gifts us as his children are used in beautiful ways to grow us more in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So the question is always why, right? It's always motive. What's the reason that we gather, that we serve, that we worship, that we sing, that we do any of these things? And Paul's being saying, be so careful. And I love how his tone changes. In chapter 3, remember, it was you fools. Who's bewitched you? You're brain dead. Now it's this, this kind of endearing, tender, where he's just going, man, I have so much love and concern for you. Come into freedom. He says, become as I am, right? Remember, light, eyes on life, death, resurrection. That's where it is. Grace, not a religious observance, not your morality, not your attendance, not your customs. It's Jesus. Become like I am. I remember that the law, I used to think, build up my righteousness. I used to think that that was the way that I was looked at as favorable in God's sight. I realized I was wicked and sinful and depraved and I was impossible to get to him. And so now I'm outside of the law. Christ is freedom. The law is not freedom. And now I can enjoy the law God gave in a right way, not because I'm trying to earn acceptance from him, because I see it as tasting sweet to me. That's what he's trying to say. Don't forget grace. Don't pervert the gospel. 
Don't make it something else. This is what it's always meant to be. And everyone speculates about the ailment. Just save your time. I mean, 17 commentaries this week on different, I mean, everyone has a different opinion. I, I, it makes, it seems like it was just an, a, a thing with his eyes, if you just read the verse, that they were willing to gouge out their own eyes and give them to Paul. Maybe he had trouble with his sight. His point is, you guys had such affection for me and understood what we were about. We were walking in step with the gospel together. He's going, what happened here? What happened between us? You were transformed. You received me in my ministry and my message. How are you now leaving that? You knew it was from God. You knew it was from the Holy Spirit. So much so that you were willing to give me your own eyes. He's just perplexed by this. And then Paul ends with sharing how not to forget our adoption and be watchful of our drifting into worshiping something that has the demonic behind it. Verse 16. This first verse is so powerful. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Isn't that social media? <laughs> oh, They make much of you. That's these false teachers. But for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. That you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, what's his good purpose? For whom I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul just compares his ministry to the false accusers. And it's profound. He just says they want you to make much of them. That's a false teacher. They want you to make much of them. Uh, He says, even the reason they're serving you is not to point you to Jesus. It's so that you would inevitably be blocked out by Jesus and therefore make much of them. Because if Jesus isn't the hero, they will naturally inevitably be the hero. This is why you see people worship so many pastors and teachers and people of movements. That's why you see people worship men and women that are leading things. Because they're not pointing them to Jesus Christ. They're pointing them to themselves. He's going, and that's what they're doing. And that's derived from, there's a a movement behind that that's demonic in nature. They don't want you to see Jesus. They don't want you to see the deliverer of the law. They don't want you to see the righteous one in your place. Man, they want you to see themselves. So you have to be so discerning. That's why I see a possible mark that you're drifting towards busy religiosity and not staying in step with the gospel is the question is always, how do you respond to truth? Do you want your ears tickled? Or when you hear a truth that's hard at times, do you go, man, that sits on me and that's weighty and that's hard to wrap my arms around, but I I want the Holy Spirit to work in this. What's your response? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, how do you respond to truth? Am I your enemy now because I'm telling you the truth? Or are you able to receive it? Because I'll tell you what, those people don't want to tell you what's true. They want to tickle your ears so you make much of them. Listen, I realize there are legitimate challenges in this room. I mean, I've sat with you in hospitals. I've been to your houses. I have grieved over losses. We have prayed. We have labored. We have walked. We have, there, there are stories in this room that would make people's skin crawl that they're not even aware of. 
And it would be very easy for me to step into this pulpit week after week and say, guys, don't worry. God will remove all of your pains. This side of heaven. Don't worry. If you just trust him, he'll bless you financially. He'll get you out of your rut. Like if you just follow him harder, he'll remove that besetting sin. If you would just love him more, he'll fix your children. I, I, it'd be easy to say that. But, but here's what's the train wreck about that. That leaves you blowing up your life because you're believing a lie. And that leads me being judged by God and damned because I'm teaching false doctrine. So we both lose. Like, like neither one of us get anywhere. And, and that's why, man, Paul is showing this, that, that, that we don't want these unhealthy codependences. That's what happens in false teaching. People get these unhealthy codependences on those teachers. And they have to have those teachers. They have to have those people. They're literally Jesus to them. And so if, if he's not there, or he's not with me, or what does he say? Or No, if you're always pointed to Christ and your allegiance is to Christ, and then you can learn what Christ says and filter it through pastors and teachers that encourage you and instruct you and build you up in the faith. But it's not this unhealthy codependency where you get blown up and he gets blown up. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The beauty, that's why the beauty of the gospel of grace is that you get him. And that regardless of circumstance, he's enough. And I always say, I don't know your theology, all of you guys. I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know how you've had church experiences. Can God redeem your marriage? Absolutely. Man, can God get you out of the financial struggle and pain and place you're in? Absolutely. Can he bring your wayward children back to himself? Absolutely. Should you pray and beg God for those things? Absolutely. And if he doesn't do them, should you just rail against his name? No. Because if God does them or doesn't do them, you have him and he's enough. And you enjoy him. What other gospel is there? What other gospel are you getting sold on? Like, no other gospel can help you then. <laughs> no other gospel has a promise for you then. No other gospel offers help for you then. And that's why I love it. A faithful teacher preaches you to, points you to Jesus, not themselves. You see what Paul said? I'm in pain until Christ is formed in you. I'm not in pain until Paul is formed in you. I'm in pain until Christ is formed in you. He wants them to know, follow, worship, make much of Jesus. I love Paul's last line. I wish I could be with you because I'm so perplexed. I wish I could change my tone. One of the hardest things about being a pastor is I know I can never make anyone believe anything. All I can do is lay before you the truth. I mean, I've told you there are times I just want to jump inside your body. I literally want to just jump inside your body and just... Oh, man, do you hear what God's calling you into? Freedom, sons and daughters, adoption, inheritance, riches, freedom, rescue, forgiveness, righteousness you couldn't have, satisfaction that you can finally enjoy that won't run dry, a well that's deep that you keep drinking, but you're full on the first sip. Bread that you eat and keep eating, but you were full on the first bite. It's amazing. It's so hard because I just, man, I just want, I want to just scream sometimes. And I talk to some of you and I, I know, I and mean, I'm going, man, that thing's just going to ruin your marriage and your family and your, I'm looking at my own self. I'm going, oh, man, this, gosh, this is real. This is real life here. Like, I can't make you do that. I can encourage you, plead, pray, most importantly. Remind us of the truth of God together as a family. 
But here's why that's so important. Because if, if your confidence is not in Christ, you will flex out your identity everywhere else. So if you're not rooted in the identity that you have in Christ as his adopted son and daughter, you will flex it out everywhere else. And you will search for every other thing under the sun to validate you. So let your body look just right. Whether buying a house that validates that you've accomplished something. Or through the possessions that you own. Or you working it up in your job because you need to feel a sense of worth and security. It does not matter what it is. Not as a way to worship God, but in using those things to define you, which only lead to enslaving you. And God's given us good gifts to worship his name. And relationships, man, they're not your God. Your spouse ain't your God. If you worship him, you will be so frustrated and anxious and embittered all the days of your life. Praise God that I am not Kristen's God. <laughs> she would leave tomorrow. I mean, if we're being real. I mean, it's just the imperfections and the, and the sinful residue that comes out from, from the fall. As a church, right? If Jesus was not our hero, many of you probably would leave. But you're here because Christ. And your allegiance is to him and not to me and not to something else. That's why we need to lean into this. Maybe some of you for the first time today have realized, man, I'm so busy religiously, but I'm still enslaved to a practice that does not bring life or freedom. I'm praying the Holy Spirit would engage your heart and set you free. And some of you, maybe you've never considered your adoption. You never even re- understood that he is your father. Yes, he's hallowed. Yes, he's holy. But he in his prayer even said, start with father. Start with dad. Know this about me. How much would that transform your relationship with him and your desire to please and honor and follow him? Confess that to him. Let's pray and ask him for help. God, there's so much that we've heard from you, so much to consider, so much to examine. But God, we're grateful that you're our dad and that you're our father if we're in Christ. Thank you that you have removed wrath that you have paid for the just demands that were required of a holy God in Christ. And thank you that you did not simply settle our debt and credit our account with your righteousness. You adopted us as sons and daughters into your family to enjoy you and to come to you as Father, receiving full rights as sons and daughters. God, I pray for those who might feel wayward today that they'd return home like Luke 15 and see God ready to embrace them. Not a dad who's waiting to give them another business report, but a God who embraces them, hugs them, reminds them of his death and resurrection in his son Jesus Christ and sets them free once again to lovingly enjoy obeying all that God has allowed them to obey. Father, would you make us holy by grace? It seems a bit counterintuitive based upon some of our experiences and what we've had in our hand being dealt in this life. But might the scriptures illuminate us and allow us to see it differently. Thank you that if we lose our life, you say we find it. And thank you that you say when we die to ourselves that we can then fully live freely to Jesus. God, help us to be honest about where our hearts are. As we come to the table, help us to enjoy remembering that in the broken body and shed blood, you have adopted us. Not when we came to you ready and with a performance that was a passing grade. But in our sin and failures, you welcomed us into the family of God to make us righteous like your son. 
and cause us to sin no more. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.